Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Australian Bitcoin Podcast. I'm Justin, your host for this episode. At the time of this recording, Bitcoin's block height is at 725,359, and Bitcoin's price in Australian dollars is 60,850. Today's episode will focus on Bitcoin wallet options, particularly a selection of hardware wallets. To help me out, I'm joined by Daniel from hardblock.com.au. Australia's first and oldest Bitcoin-only exchange. Now, to start with, it's worth noting that there are lots of different types of wallets. So you've probably heard of mobile wallets or desktop wallets or hardware wallets, as well as things like cold and hot wallets. So I want to just open up a discussion about what do those things mean? So could we define what is a cold wallet? Is there a, is there a simple way of defining that? What do you think? What's a cold wallet? Yeah, what's a cold um, wallet? Like, what, what what would you have as a criteria for you personally? If someone said this yeah, is a cold yeah, wallet, yeah, sure. I think it has to be offline. That's what I, that's what my criteria would be. It's disconnected from the internet, and um, I would say once it's once there has been a connection to the internet, it's not a cold wallet anymore. So actually, um, and there's a discussion here, are hardware wallets actually code wallets? I mean, what's your what's your take on it? Yeah, like your, your definition is, is pretty much the same that I would use. So a cold wallet means it has not been online before, whereas a hot wallet, which is often mobile wallets, desktop wallets, um, that generally has connected to the internet. And I, I guess the thing that makes it a bit difficult is the way that hardware wallets work is they can connect to the internet, but they do it in a way where they try to stop your seed, you know, your private key from actually touching the internet, so to speak. Um, so, so what I mean by that is some hardware wallets are what's called air-gapped, which means they're not connected to any computer um, via USB um, or even via something like wireless or Bluetooth. So they're not connected whatsoever, which means even though you're accessing the seed and the private key within the hardware wallet, it's not connected to the device that's connected to the internet, uh, like your laptop, for example. The other way they tend to do it is with what's called a secure element. So you would think of a hardware wallet is kind of looks a little bit like a USB in some cases. And inside of that, it's like there's another separate device called a secure element, which keeps your private key or your seed secure. And even if you do connect your hardware wallet to a computer, the intention of that secure element is that the seed or the private key remains inside the secure element and never comes out, which means even if your hardware wallet is connected to your computer, which is connected to the internet, you could still say that there's some level of protection there because of the secure element. So would you say a hardware wallet is a cold wallet or not? I would say most hardware wallets are cold wallets, but it depends on how you use them. And generally the way that they're designed is that you can use them sort of as designed and they should remain a cold wallet. Yeah, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I think it's kind of a bit ambiguous because mm. um, uh, I would actually probably say I would not classify them as a cold wallet. Most of them, maybe the egapped ones, I would, but the ones that are not egapped, I would uh, not say they're cold wallets because there is actually an internet connection there. And um, so, yeah, I mean, the keys never leave the hardware wallet, but the actual transactions get signed. So they get sent with a connection there and they get signed by the on the hardware device and then sent back to the computer but since there is a connection that and the computer there is connected to the internet my take would be that strictly speaking a hardware wallet isn't a code wallet but again it's a bit 
blurry. It's that's true. And again, it depends on the implementation. So maybe we'll get into a couple of examples of different types of hardware wallets. So the one that I use is called a cold card, which is completely air gapped. You don't plug that into a computer. And there is also a secure element within the cold card. So I would consider that to be a true cold wallet in the sense that it never connects directly to the internet and never connects to a device that connects to the internet either. Whereas there's two other very prominent hardware wallets, and don't get me wrong, there's not just these three that we talk about today. There is more than this, but these are the the most prominent. Um, There's also Trezor and Ledger. And from my understanding, Trezor doesn't have a secure element, while Ledger does have a secure element, and both devices do connect to a computer. So I guess with this sort of definition of a cold wallet is only offline, you might say a Trezor and a Ledger aren't strictly cold wallets, even though they have some protections in place. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, I think I would I'd agree with that, yes. So I want to talk a little bit about, because this is for beginners, um, how would you use one of these devices? And so we, we've all had a bit of a, an experiment with different types of hardware wallets. And by we all, I mean a hard block. We've um, tested a few out. So I, wanted, I was curious to pick your brain, Daniel, about the Trezor wallet. How does it work roughly? Yeah, sure. Okay, so the Trezor wallet. So Trezor is actually the first, wallet, the first hardware wallet that came into existence. Uh, so it was created by Satoshi Labs. I think it was back in around 2013 or 14. It has a long kind of reputation and um, and has a good reputation. The company that created it, Satoshi Lab, is a, a very reputable Bitcoin company. They also created the first mining pool. I think they really adhere to the ethos of Bitcoin. And I think that's important because, like, who is actually creating the wallet? I mean, there's a bit of trust there, so you want to know that it's created by trustworthy and reputable people. And I believe uh, Satoshi Labs who created it are such people. So to summarize it, it's okay. It's key things. It is open source. Uh, it's not air gapped. It does not have a secure element. And, and how would someone use it? Yeah. So, you, you know, you take it and you, you plug it into your yeah. device, don't you? Like yeah, your that's computer? Yeah, yeah. So, okay, basically it's a little similar to a little USB device. You plug it into your computer. You need to plug it in to use it. Uh, and then you need to use the wallet software on your computer. Uh, so you can either, it's web-based or you can install a version of the software uh, on your desktop. And um, But to use the software to actually send the transactions, you need the physical USB device plugged in. So that's how it works. So if, with Trezor, there's, there's two different versions of a Trezor wallet. There's the Trezor T and there's the Trezor 1. Difference between them is the Trezor T is around 294 Australian dollars. The Trezor 1 is 92. So Trezor 1 is significantly cheaper. Mm. And I would suggest that for most people, Trezor 1 is good enough. Uh, I don't think they need the Trezor T, but um, just bri- because I often get this question, what's the difference, which one they should get? I think, yeah, I think Trezor 1 is good enough, but some differences between the Trezor T and the Trezor 1 is the Trezor T has a USB-C connection as opposed to Trezor 1, which has a micro USB. So it's a bit more sturdy. It doesn't fall out as much. Mm. It's better. 
the Trezor P has a screen where you can actually enter your passphrase on the screen of the device, where with the Trezor One, you enter the passphrase on your computer. The Trezor T also has more support for shared coins. <laughs> uh, probably the most notably, Trezor T supports Monero, and Monero is actually as far as shared coins it's go. It's my favorite shared coin. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah mine too. So... Actually, the Trezor One doesn't support Monero, but the Trezor T does support Monero. Hmm. The other key difference between Trezor and the other uh, wallets is Trezor is completely open sourced. There's actually schematics online for the actual code of the wallet, but also the firmware and everything. So you can, if somebody wants, they can get a soldering iron, buy the equipment, it actually lists what other parts and you can just recreate it yourself. You don't need to buy it. You can buy the components and just create the whole hardware wallet yourself. Everything is there. Everything is open source. So there's some benefits for that. And again, it goes kind of to the ethos of Bitcoin mm. about being open source. And the benefit from a security perspective is because everything is open, it's visible and people can analyze it and find any vulnerabilities and report them. I th I'll just jump yeah, in there just yeah. really quickly with something. I think that's a really good point because sometimes people will say, oh, well, what's the point of it being open source? I can't check the code myself anyway. But the thing is, it's, it's not about us individually checking the code. It's about having a community and, yeah. and knowing that there are a lot of other people, especially adversaries. There's competitors of Trezor that will be looking over Trezor's code, yeah. looking for issues so they can say, hey, yeah. look, there's an issue here. Why yeah. don't you use our hardware wallet instead? So generally open source, it just gives you the peace of mind to know that there's been many, many eyes, perhaps with more expertise than ourselves, have looked over it. And therefore, even if you can't, you know, you're not a coder and you don't know how to analyze it, someone else has. So, yeah, correct. I, I agree. So another difference is between the other wallets is it does not have a secure element. Mm. So again, there's some, there's some benefits and downsides to that. So a secure element is an element within the device that's much more secure and prevents different types of side channel attacks. Mm. So Trezor does not have it. But usually these secure elements are closed source. The other wallets which have voice elements, um, again, we don't actually know what's inside voice elements, so we don't know what's happening there. Trezor doesn't have them, but we know what's there. That's true, yeah. That, that applies to most hardware wallets, except for ColdCard. So ColdCard has an open source secure element, okay. uh, whereas, say, Ledger, for example, doesn't. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, okay, okay. So I just wanted to, one other thing I wanted to address uh, regarding Trezor Wallet. About one or two years ago, there was a disclosure of a vulnerability. Uh, so Kraken, the exchange, made a disclosure um, about a vulnerability in Trezor, and, and it's related to not having the secure element. The vulnerability was an attacker had the actual physical Trezor device, they could pretty cheaply extract the seed fries and then brute force the pin mm. to access the wallet. So that's a reasonably serious vulnerability. Having said that, though, it's important to remember this was only something that was demonstrated in kind of experimental conditions. It's, there's no evidence that this has been exploited in the wild. True. And that's... Uh, in security, that's something that has to be taken into account of because often attacks are demonstrated in a lab environment, but it's like how 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 often are these actually used in real life? There's mm -hmm. no demonstration this was 
but but is a vulnerability but vulnerability hasn't been actually fixed it's not i don't think it's possible to fix it without creating a secure element there is a way to prevent it is by having an, an additional passphrase mm-hmm. so what's actually recommended is to have a passphrase with your hardware wallet mm. uh, which is the seed, so you, to differentiate between the seed phrase and the passphrase the seed phrase is what restores the wallet, but the past phrase is kind of like an additional, an addition towards the seed phrase. Mm. It's like the 25th word of the seed phrase. So it's an extra password. So it makes it a bit more complicated to use because each time you try to use the wallet, you don't have to just plug it in. You have to enter like a big, long password. Mm. But having that long password prevents that the vulnerability in case an attacker has a physical device. If you have a past phrase, if they have a physical device, they cannot uh, steal your funds. I want to jump in maybe and just quickly yeah. define because I think passphrases are a really cool tool that seem to be underutilized. So if you think about it, you have your seed words, which is either 12 to 24 words that restores the wallet, and the passphrase ends up being called either a 13th word or a 25th word, depending on how many your original seed words were, whether they're 12 or 24. Mm-hmm. But the point being is that your wallet is restored by combining those two. So if you have, say, a, a 24-word seed word, seed phrase, and then you also have a passphrase on top, you actually need both to be able to restore your wallet. And what that means is, say, if someone got the treasure, they're able to extract it, which it probably is a very, very technical and complicated process, not accessible to many people. But if they were able to do it, they would just get your original seed words. They wouldn't also get the passphrase, which means they would be restoring a different wallet. And that's kind of the cool part about using passphrases too, is that it gives a level of plausible deniability. So you might have your seed words written down somewhere, and then you have your passphrase written down somewhere separately. And say, for example, if you were ever forced to disclose your wallet, you could just disclose the original seed words, which would generate an entirely different wallet compared to if you disclose both your seed words and your passphrase together. So it adds an additional level of security and and lets you almost have a decoy wallet. So what what some people do is they'll have, um, say, just the original seed words, the Mm. 12 or 24 words. They'll put in a very small amount, a couple of hundred dollars maybe worth of Bitcoin. But then they'll have their actual wallet, which is those same 12 to 24 seed words, plus the passphrase. And so if they're ever forced to disclose their wallet, they just disclose the original 12 to 24 words. And say the attacker, they only get access to a couple of hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin. And that seems plausible because there is actually Bitcoin in that wallet, whereas you get to keep your full wallet which is the 24C words plus the passphrase. So I think it's, it's just good to clarify that because sometimes we mix up passphrase with password and we think it's like a, a whole separate thing, but it's actually part of your seed words, but can be used with treasures, hmm. um, even ledger and cold card. In fact, most wallets um, have the ability to add a passphrase to your 12 to 24 word seed phrase, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, and something else again regarding that to remember is if you don't have a passphrase, and a lot of people don't put it on, it's more convenient. Fundamentally, you're just relying on the security of a physical device. Mm. And why this vulnerability has been found in Trezor, and I don't believe Ledger has this vulnerability, if even in Ledger, if you don't have a passphrase, relying on the physical d- device to just keep you secure, is it's a risky, it's somewhat risky. Because... It basically means that the, the, just the seed phrase is there on the physical device, and somebody can work out the hardware. Mm. They can, they, they might, they can figure out how to get it. 
what I really want to try and get across is in this vulnerability is just in Trezor, as far as I'm aware, it could very easily be found to happen in other hardware wallets if you don't have a passphrase. But again, it, it's important to remember what the point of tr- hardware wallets is and the they're meant to prevent is remote attacks. Yes. So you get up in the morning, you check your computer and your Bitcoins are stolen. That's not going to happen with a hardware device because they, even with this attack, they need the actual physical device. That's exactly right. I do like passphrases because it allows you to almost have multiple wallets. So I know how some people use it where they'll have their seed phrase and then they'll have maybe two or three passphrases, ones for personal uh, one's for maybe a super fund or, or work, and then maybe one is for spending. And then, of course, they could have a decoy wallet in there as well mm-hmm. that doesn't even have a passphrase. Mm-hmm. So it's, mm-hmm. yeah, really advanced. Um, well, n- not as advanced once you get your head around it but, it, but it is a bit more advanced than how most people use their seed words. And, of yeah. course, it adds that additional level of security on top of what the hardware wallet device is doing, which is um, kind of mitigating a lot of attack vectors except for that very physical one if someone mm-hmm. actually gets the device itself. I feel we could almost have another podcast on the need for uh, passphrases. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think it's a pretty cool idea. And it's something that's not really talked about a lot and is very kind of confusing sometimes. But yeah, it's certainly a, a good tool for the toolkit, um, yeah. whether in combination with hardware yeah. wallets or not. Yeah. So I want to move on to uh, the ledger and the cold card. I'll go through the ledger relatively quickly because it has a lot of features that the Trezor does in the sense that um, it has shitcoin support. uh, It has Bitcoin support, of course. It is a closed source hardware and firmware, though, which is very, very different to Trezor, which is open source hardware and firmware. The ledger doesn't have an air gap, similar to the Trezor, because you need to plug it into your computer. However, the ledger does have what's called a secure element, which is intended to give it an additional level of security, even if you do plug it into, a, say, a compromised device. However, the secure element is closed source, so it's very difficult to verify. Well, in fact, it's impossible to verify uh, that claim. So that in my mind, the, the difference between these two, so the ledger and the Trezor, is that although the Trezor has shitcoin support, you get to choose the firmware that you install on it. And they do have a Bitcoin-only firmware, which means you can just install that if you only intend to use it for Bitcoin. And the benefit of doing that is that by not installing any of the uh, the shitcoin firmware on the hardware wallet is you remove any potential attack vectors that could be in that software itself, whereas the ledger doesn't give you as much of uh, the ability to do that. You do install different types of firmware for the ledger, depending on the coin support that you want. However, my understanding is that the base firmware still has the capability to to interact with shitcoins, which means there could be potentially um, attack vectors or uh, attack options there that wouldn't be found on the Trezor if the Trezor is just running Bitcoin only. So, I mean, that, that gets a little bit into the nuance or the detail, but I think it's useful to know that even though sometimes people will say, both Trezor and Ledger have shitcoin support. Trezor is a little bit more focused on being Bitcoin only by providing a Bitcoin only firmware um, to reduce your attack surface. Okay. The other thing I want to mention about Ledger is that um, I guess the parts which I don't like so much about it is that it is closed source, which I mentioned before, but also they don't have the best track record. So Trezor has a, a great track record in terms of privacy, in terms of uh, you know the Bitcoin ethos, whereas Ledger, I, I couldn't say as much. So around 2020, there was a data leak on Ledger's store, which leaked essentially all of the customer's data from uh, home addresses, 
um, to wherever their ledger was delivered, as well as you know first name, last name, phone numbers, email addresses. The problem with this, because a lot of places do end up having a data breach, but the problem with this is that Ledger did not disclose it initially. Um, it took them several months to initially disclose several hundred thousand uh, user data was leaked. And then that number grew to around a million. And then eventually it finally landed on something like 1.7 million users data was leaked, which which might be their entire user database. It hasn't been clear what they've done to circumvent that happening again in future, which means there's a possibility the same thing could happen. So what this meant practically was that anyone who bought a ledger and had it delivered to their home, basically anyone who might want to, say, take that Bitcoin now has a very, very long list of people's addresses knowing that they've ordered a ledger. On top of that, they have contact details. So there was a lot of um, phishing attempts made where people were receiving text messages and emails saying, oh, we're contacting you from Ledger. Um, click this link because we think your device is being compromised. Of course, by clicking this link, you're installing some sort of malware on a device that you have. Um, that might not give them access directly to your Ledger, but it does give them access to your devices, which normally there's plenty of sensitive data on there anyway. So I guess it's just, it's useful to keep in mind the reputation of an organization as you know how they deal with things like data breaches um, in the past or in the future, as well as, again, that that whole concept of, of closed source um, makes it very difficult to verify claims. Yeah, right. And what I would add to that is people often say that it was just the website that got hacked, mm. not the physical device, which is true. But to me, if your business is security, like Ledger, you should yeah. you should secure your website. Yeah, that's a very good point. But, Definitely, uh, it's kind of if you can't secure your website and you make a mistake there, how do we can we trust you to not make a mistake somewhere else? And it does actually impact the security of, of their wallets indirectly. Mm. You could say it's a side channel attack by making the customers' um, addresses visible, so somebody can use the $5 range attack yeah, that's right. on the customers. So you could even argue this is a kind of side channel attack. Mm. And it, the, the transparency to me is is really the icing on the cake. You know, the Bitcoin ethos is open source. So by Ledger not disclosing this until they absolutely had to, and then underestimating, in quotations, the number, um, and then it ended up being somewhat like 10 times that amount of users' data was leaked. To me, that's somewhat of a cause for concern. It's hard to trust a company like that that doesn't have that transparency and, and won't volunteer the transparency themselves. So moving on to Cold Card, which is the final hardware wallet that we'll talk about, going back to that conversation about is a hardware wallet truly air-gapped or truly cold, Cold Card is the only one that is truly air-gapped because you don't plug it into a device. So the way that it works is you use either the device as a standalone, which means that you would say, um, and just quickly so you understand what it looks like, it's about the size of the palm of your hand and it looks like a calculator. And you can generate your seed words with the cold card or you can enter in seed words that you already have into the cold card. And then using the cold card by itself, you can then generate receiving addresses, which you can then uh, use their display, which shows a QR code. And say if you were uh, getting paid salary in Bitcoin, that might go into like a hot wallet, like a mobile wallet that you have. You would then just scan the QR receiving address on your cold card with your mobile wallet, and you would send whatever Bitcoin you want into your cold card, and it would just remain there. Alternatively, you can actually use the cold card with another type of software wallet. They don't have their own software wallet, whereas Trezor and Ledger do. Um, but it integrates with the vast majority of software wallets like Sparrow Wallet or Blue Wallet. 
And the way that it interacts is just through micro SD. So you would go on the cold card, you would say, I want to export this to a, another wallet um, so I can watch my balances on that other wallet or I can construct transactions on that other wallet. And the Trezor, uh, sorry, the, uh, the cold card would export the file that you need onto a little micro USB or micro SD card. You would put that micro SD card into your computer um, or whatever device you're using and you'd be able to uh, have what's called like a watch-only wallet where you can then watch all the uh, the transactions come in or come out from your hardware wallet. Um, and of course, you can construct transactions too from that software. And then you put that onto a micro SD, put that back into the cold card, sign the transaction with the cold card, take the micro SD back to the original device, and then you can send it. So the idea being is that any communication back and forth from your software wallet and your device like your computer um, and the cold card, it's all done via micro SD card, uh, which gives it that kind of truly air-gapped um, feature. The other thing that's kind of cool, I, I did mention the display screen, which the Trezor also has, and I think that does make it really easy to use, kind of like a standalone. But the other thing that cold card has, which I think makes it more secure in some ways, is they have this implementation called Seed XOR. Um, I, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Basically, what that does is it takes your seed words, either a 12 to 24-word um, standard seed words, and it can split that up into multiple other seed words. So as an example, it might take 12 seed word phrase, and it splits that up into three other 12 seed word phrases. Now, each of those 12 seed word phrases is an individual wallet by itself. However, if you combine them together, it gives you your original wallet. So th the benefit of that is that you can split up your original 12 word seed phrase into three new 12-word seed phrases and perhaps distribute them, store them in different locations. And each of them is a decoy. Each of them might have a small amount of Bitcoin in it. So if someone gets that, they don't get your full stack, of course. And you also know that someone's compromised it because you can see those funds have moved. However, when the time comes where you want to get back to your very original, the true 12-word seed phrase, you need to then go collect those separate three times 12-word seed phrases that is generated, combine them together to get your original words. It probably sounds very complicated, but I guess the point there is that you can split your actual seed words up into smaller seed words, which can work like individual wallets. Good decoys, um, maybe good to give to family members. There's lots of different ways that you can run it to uh, to back up your your seed words and with a bit more sophistication. Uh, Justin, so most, I know Trezor and I believe Ledger can be used also as a actually a universal to token to log into websites True. and such. Can code card be used like that also? Code card yeah. cannot be used like that. So okay. it, it doesn't have uh, like a two-factor authentication uh, type yep. function um, or, or a password management type function like yep. Trezor does. Mm, okay, yeah. So yeah, Trezor can be used as a, for your password manager and such things like that, even separate to its cryptocurrency bitcoin that's right as a as a point there the the downside mm -hmm. to using the trezor in that fashion is yeah. that you would need to take it with you everywhere you go mm. um as a two-factor authentication device or a password mm. manager mm. so you need to keep your bitcoin with you everywhere in your trezor yeah. and plug it into a device mm. anytime you wanted a password manager the other part that i didn't like about that because i did look into that originally as perhaps a, a management device for myself is that the only software that you can use with Trezor for their password manager is a Google Chrome extension. Mm. And um, I, you know, if you've read any of my Twitter posts, you know that I'm very much against Google Chrome. <laughs> I think there's uh, yeah. some very good privacy maintaining browsers. Um, but users that 
see their threat model as being relatively low risk, that might not be an issue. Um, but I, I personally wouldn't like to carry my Trezor with me everywhere just as a password manager. I have to plug it into my computer each time um, and then also use Google Chrome to, to be able to um, to manage it. But it's definitely got that option. And, and really all these things depend on your individual circumstances and whether or not that meets your threat model. Like who do you think might be getting a hold of your Trezor or what is actually on there? I guess a final point on both the ledger and the cold card, and maybe, you know, let me know if this is the same, Daniel, with Trezor, is that they have, say, like a duress pin. So on the cold card, there's something called a duress pin where if someone, like a $5 wrench attacker says, all right, you know, give me your Bitcoin, you know, put in the passphrase, put in the seed words, put in the pin, whatever you need to, you can actually put in a specific pin that you set earlier that will cause a different wallet to open up on the cold card, like a decoy wallet. Um, there's also a different type of duress pin that'll actually brick the entire cold card. So it just turns the cold card into something that's now unusable forever. And if you did that, of course, you need to now go buy a new cold card. The ledger has something similar where you can actually have a, a passphrase login with your Trezor as well as just the original seed words with your Trezor. So one of them could be a decoy. So if someone asks you to put in the pin, you put in the pin to the decoy uh, and you're you know roughly safe. Um, does the Trezor have something like that? Apart from the, the passphrase, I guess. Yeah, I'm not aware. Uh, you can create a separate wallet with a separate passphrase, and yeah. you can use that as a decoy. Yeah, I'm not aware of any kind of anything like that, uh, like a duress or a brick yeah. pin. I think the passphrase does more than enough because that's really, yeah. you know, if you had a five dollar wrench attacker saying open up your hardware wallet, and then you bricked the hardware wallet, I, I think they might know that you that you've uh, got a strategy there. Whereas if you open up a decoy which simply all you need is a different passphrase, that would be more than enough. So the Trezor's probably got good security comparable as well. Right. For the audience who might not be familiar with the term, what's a $5 wrench attack? $5 wrench attack is probably the the cheapest type of hack attack because it's not really a hack. It's someone that goes and buys a a $5 wrench from the hardware store, which is probably actually more like a $10 wrench attack now with inflation. They then bring that that five or ten dollar wrench to your house because they know you have Bitcoin because the ledger leaked your details. Unfortunately, um, they knock on the door. You open the door. They say, "I'm going to bash you with this five dollar or ten dollar wrench unless you give me your Bitcoin, which I know you own because I've seen your name on this list of 1.7 million users whose data was leaked." So that's a five dollar wrench attack, and that's why it's good to have something in mind for that because although it's unlikely, it's probably the lowest hanging fruit for an attacker to get Bitcoin because hacking someone remotely or you know getting physical access to a hardware wallet and being able to extract the seed words that's all very sophisticated it usually requires specific hardware um, a lot of knowledge about hacking and you know those sort of attacks so five dollar wrench attack or ten dollar wrench attack is is more accessible so something that you definitely want to keep in mind as low-hanging fruit that you want to mitigate against yeah and something i just also wanted to add is we talk about these attacks and I hope we're not scaring people mm. because it's important to remember, I don't really know of hardly any situations where people lost Bitcoins due to an attack Likewise. in hardware wallets. It's much better than holding your Bitcoin on an exchange and I've had plenty of cases of people losing money in such a situation. True. Like attacks on hardware wallets were basically unheard of. And just to give you an ex- example, we talk about all these complicated attack attack vectors and things. Mm. The attacks I have heard on hardware wallets, and, and this might be very amusing, it's a very simple basic attack, which was basically people on eBay, they were selling um, 
hardware wallets. Mm. And you might think, oh, they physically tampered, they've done some crazy stuff. But that wasn't the case. Mm. They were selling the hardware wallets. The wallets were genuine, but they simply shipped the wallets with the seed phrase already. And people who weren't familiar with what they were doing, instead of creating a new wallet with a new seed phrase, they used, they thought they had to use the existing seed phrase mm. because the attackers provided them instruction, use this seed phrase to create your wallet. Yeah. But they actually restored a wallet which the attacker created. And when they put money onto it, the attacker had access to the wallet. So it's yeah. a very simple, very basic kind of attack. And that's the only thing I heard of. And that, that was pretty rare. But I think just illustrates, we talk about, talk about all these complicated things, but it's actually something simple like that got some people. Very true. And I think the other one, the probably the most common way that people say lose access to their Bitcoin is that they set up a wallet, but then they don't go through the process of recovering it. As in yeah. trying to delete that wallet and now redo it and just make sure yeah. that you can get access to it because yeah. it's it's really user error that tends to be the biggest issue. And then, of course, you know, simple attacks like the one that Daniel just mentioned, you know, having an intermediary put a seed phrase on there for you and say, you have to use this one. So it's just good things to keep in mind. Well, I think that's that's probably enough for what we intended to uh, to cover in this episode, which is just giving people an idea of especially hardware wallets and, and cold wallets. And We'll talk in a future episode about different types of software wallets, which is when you have a, a wallet on your desktop or on your mobile device. And, and of course, you can integrate software wallets with hardware wallets. Um, and we talked a little bit about that in this episode, but we will go into that in more detail uh, next time. So thank you for your time, Daniel. Do you have any any kind of final words or goodbyes? Yeah. Uh, yes. I hope that was useful to people uh, about hardware wallets, that they learned uh, some useful tips. And I guess I would say we do help people with setting up hardware wallets at Hardblock. So if if you think this might be too complicated for you, it's actually not that complicated. But if you do want some help, you can contact us and we'll try and help you out. Absolutely. Yeah, always happy to, to handhold. And what, what users tend to find is the first time they set it up, it seems very clunky and confusing. By the time they restore everything from scratch, it becomes a little bit more familiar. And by the time you get to that third try, it becomes second nature. And, yeah. and there's only so much that you can do with a hardware wallet. Um, it becomes a, a little bit clearer. And then you, you have a better understanding of how Bitcoin works, how it's restored from seed words or seed words plus a passphrase. Um, and just how the hardware wallet functions and what could go wrong with it, which is very little. Um, so I think it's a, it's a useful investment. And again, any difficulties, please reach out and let us know. Yeah, and the way we've done it in the past was we sat with somebody and we helped them set up a demonstration wallet, uh, then restore it. And after that, we wiped it so they knew how to do it and then they actually do their own real wallet by themselves. Just as a final point for myself before we uh, finish up is that make sure you always back up your seed words because even though we're talking about putting the seed words into a hardware wallet, maybe with the passphrase, maybe not, um, and that gives you all this extra level of security because of things like the air gap or the secure element, it is really important that you keep your seed words written down somewhere um, or, or even uh, imprinted into metal um, so it's fireproof, waterproof, Basically, any usual damage that might happen to a piece of paper wouldn't happen to a, a metal seed phrase on a metal plate, sorry. So I guess the point there is hardware wallet's important, but storing your seed phrase, very, very important too. 
always something to keep in mind. Well, that's it for this episode, guys. Thanks very much for listening. Please like, share, and subscribe if you enjoyed the content. Uh, Let us know in the comments or reach out to us on Twitter at hardblockbtc. That's all one word, hardblockbtc. If you have any feedback or content requests, until next time.